today, uh, uh, we're going to consider uh, this passage. We're going to go back to um, Palm Sunday. And what I want you to remember and know as we do that this morning is that we, in some ways, are, are very close to that day. And so every time we come back to uh, these kind of texts around holy um, seasons in the church calendar, it is tempting for us to go, ah, well, uh, I've heard this before. There's nothing new or novel here. And what I, I want to try to just remind you this morning is that there is something in the rhythm of corporate worship in the church uh, as we follow along the lines of these seasons in the church calendar that bring us right back into that day and that that day is still very close for us. And as we enter into the story again, we are reenacting and reliving out that story, not just in the way that we kind of think about it or some new tidbit of information that we gather from it, but that God actually does something in us through his word as we enter into these texts, that it is in some sense supernatural. And to remember that this morning as we consider something that we've heard maybe uh, many times before. Andrew Wilson, in his excellent book, The God of All Things, asked this question, have you ever answered the problem of evil with a donkey? Now, Andrew's reflection from his book, our inspiration of so much of the thinking on these next two sermons, but the question, have you ever answered the question of the problem of evil with a donkey? I want that to be kind of a guiding question this morning. Our outline today, it's not, I don't have any slides for you today, but the outline is this, consider the donkey. Part, uh, number two, the donkey means Jesus comes as a king. And number three, the donkey means Jesus comes in peace. First, consider the donkey. God answers the problem of evil with a donkey. In Job 39, which we quoted a few weeks ago, God addresses the questions of Job. Job, the man may be most uh, associated with suffering. Job, the man who loses his children, his health, his fortune. Job, who is told by his wife, why don't you just curse God and die? Job, who is told by his friends, you must have done something pretty bad, dude, to warrant this kind of predicament and suffering from God. Job, who mourns and laments his condition in sackcloth and ash, who says he is blameless and asks the question, why is this happening to me? And is this not the question of our hearts? What questions prick at your heart when you suffer, when you lose someone or something that is precious to you, when you get sick or someone you love gets sick, when a child gets sick, when some kind of news comes to you in the middle of the night, when the fears that are just shadows and ghosts in the everyday um, meanderings of your life become actual, real, tangible. Why is this happening to me? How long is this going to continue? How can you be good if this is happening to me? Aren't you powerful enough to take it away? Right? These are the cries of the heart. They are the cries of every heart. And how does God answer them? Well, in Job with a donkey. Now, it seems a little flippant maybe, like if I'm counseling someone and they are afraid and expressing their fears with questions like, how can God do this? Well, have you considered the donkey? Right? That'd be kind of weird, right? This is what God does in Job 
to Job. For 37 chapters, there's debate and speech and speech and debate about God and evil and suffering and justice. And then God speaks in 38. God talks about the sky and the weather and then pivots in 39 to talk about animals. And not just any animal, but odd animals. Behemoth and Leviathan and ostriches and pregnant goats and wild donkeys. Right In 39.5, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his, as his pasture and he searches after every good thing. God says to Job, consider the donkey and how little control you have over him. The donkey scorns tumult in the city. He doesn't hear what's going on around you. He hears not even the shouts of his driver. He dwells in this arid land filled with salt and desire. the desire of his heart is for green things. And that's what he lives for. Andrew Wilson says, perhaps your perspective is more limited than you think. I mean, donkeys show us that God is a wildly creative God and the donkey is proof. This clumsy, untamable, exasperating animal makes every trainer at some point throw up their hands in frustration. You do a Google search for the funniest animal, one of the first animals to pop up is the donkey. The teeth, the ears, the hee-haw. The donkey is a poor man's horse. In movies and literature, the poor man rides a donkey. Sancho Panza rides a donkey. The funny fat man rides the donkey. The donkey means derision, foolishness. There is a substitute word for donkey, and when we use it, we use it in this way. We use it to insult and deride, to mock someone's incompetence and stupidity. Stupidity. Consider the donkey, Job. It's such an odd way for God to answer. Now, what I want you to know that in Matthew, there are similar cries of the heart. Right? In the time of Jesus, there is these deep questions abounding. Questions about righteousness. Questions about judge, judgment and justice. About vindication. When is God going to vindicate his people? When is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, going to come and free us in the land that he has given us? The land that they had returned to over 400 years ago. Surely God was going to arrive and deal with all these Gentiles who now occupy the land. And we're making a mockery of God and his promises. Surely God is going to end this injustice. The injustice of high taxes, the injustice of magistrates ruling over all places, the temple, our temple, and the priest, and the injustice of being maligned and disenfranchised. Right? These are the questions scratching at the heart of every Israelite. And bound up in this question is what? When's this going to end? And wrapped up in those questions were more questions about God's promises and God's Messiah, because a Messiah meant the anointed one sent from God, a type of king, a God king who would come and restore the fortunes of Israel, a God king who would come and restore shalom, the Hebrew word for peace and wholeness. Why is this happening to us? Aren't we your people, God? 
How long is this going to continue? You promised to deliver us from all of our enemies. How can you be good if this is still happening to us? Aren't you going to exert your power and wipe all this away? And then maybe they would quote the Psalms. Maybe Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. To this question, the Lord says, consider the donkey... Israel. Consider the donkey church. Enter Jesus. There is this one who has an authority we have never heard. There is this one who is healing the sick. There is this one talking about the kingdom of God. Maybe this one is the Messiah. Now there have been others, others who claimed Messiahship, others who failed to bring God's kingdom, but this Jesus seems different. And the triumphal entry of Matthew 21 is proof of this. This is a victory parade or a parody of it, a type of parade, a foreshadowing of it, right? We do victory parades. Sports teams come to mind, right? When the Rams just won the Super Bowl, there was a parade. They are the champs. This is something done throughout history, the victorious riding in after conquering their enemies. Now, again, consider the context of Israel. The triumphal entry is just this, but, it, but Jesus does it on a donkey. Not a white horse, not a war horse, but a donkey. Jesus tells his disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, there's a lot bound up in that, right? Like, just how much Jesus knew of this and how quickly the owner would respond to just taking the donkey and the colt. But this was to fulfill what Zechariah had prophesied. It was intentional because via the donkey, Jesus is declaring, point two, that he is the king. This isn't a spectacle. This isn't some sort of poor man's victory parade. You see, the donkey is the story, donkeys in the story of Israel are royal animals. They were ridden by kings. The sons of Israel first make their shift in the book of Kings. The judges Jair and Abdon all rode donkeys to declare their rulership. The sons of King David rode the offspring of a donkey and a horse, the mule, and Solomon rode in as king on a mule. And when he came in on the mule into the city of Jerusalem, his brother Adonijah gave up his coup attempt because he knew it was too late. Solomon was the king. And so the prophet Zechariah says Israel's once and future king would ride in on a donkey. 
Andrew Wilson says the following, sometimes in our eagerness to show the difference between Jesus and all the other kings, we imply he is so different that people wouldn't have realized he was a king at all. Our text this morning says something different to us. The Bible says something different to us. Kings ride donkeys. And so when the crowds see Jesus riding in on a donkey, they know what is happening. A donkey means king, and a king means Messiah. And maybe Psalm 118, the psalm that's been quoted a couple times this morning, would come into their minds. Remember, the people of Israel are so liturgically formed by the psalms. Maybe they would have started to think about this as Jesus comes in on a king. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for, his, for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then here in verse 5, the cries of the heart. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then hear these words. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better for me to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better for me to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Hear the cries of the heart, verse 10. All nations surround me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surround me. They surround me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me like bees. They went out like fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed so hard that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tent of the righteous. And then hear this. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalt. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. That right hand. The hand of the king, the hand that executes justice, the hand that defends the oppressed, the hand that sweeps away threats and brings salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And then hear the kingly language, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. Picture it. The Israelite rehearsed in the Psalms. Seeing Jesus ride in on a donkey, coming through the gates, open the gates of righteousness that I might enter them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me. All those prayers, 400 and plus years of prayers in the land. I think that you've answered me and have become my salvation. This will be our text next week on Easter, but the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then what's quoted next? It's quoted in our text this morning. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna, that's the word. Save us. Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. How does God answer the cries of Israel's heart? With a donkey. 
and more specifically with a king riding in on that donkey. And the last point this morning, how does the king come? He comes in peace. You see, the donkey means the king has come, and he's come in peace. This is Zechariah's point. The prophet Zechariah, when Zechariah declares his vision, his oracle to God's people, they have failed. They have turned from God. They are on the run. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. That means that the prophecies that Zechariah issues to Israel comes after the people have returned from Babylon and exile. The people of Judah, God's people, were living under God's rule and blessing, right? They were living in the land, but they disobeyed God's word. They broke covenant with God. They weren't living as they were commissioned. They were once slaves in Egypt. They had been freed, and yet now they returned to their slavery and their adultery of worshiping other gods. They were to be a people living in God's place, experiencing God's rule and blessing so that all the nations of the world would be blessed through them. But instead, they sought to take God's blessing for themselves and themselves alone. Their whole enterprise is mired with sin and failure. So God sends nations to conquer Israel. The kingdom's divided in two. The the northern kingdom is completely obliterated by the Assyrians. The southern king Judah, kingdom Judah is destroyed, but the people are, are carried off into exile. And a couple of generations later, the Persians are now running things, and Darius is their king. And he has been used by God to allow thousands, a remnant of this once more mighty people, to return to their land and to rebuild the walls of the city and the temple. The temple was the centerpiece of Israel's worship. Here, God would be present to the people through priests and sacrifices. Restoring and rebuilding the temple was key to living faithfully in God's place, experiencing his rule and blessing. Now, Zechariah's refrain in his prophetic utterance to these people now living in the land was, come back. Come back. I am the God of second chances. I have brought you back from the land of Babylon to give you a second chance. You have a second chance. And the question is, how? How can we be a people who have done what we've done? How can we have a second chance? And Zechariah says in chapters 1 to 6, you have a second chance because I'm the king. Through my rule, you can have a second chance. And then in chapters 7 and 8, in two sermons, Zechariah says, you can have a second chance because I'm a prophet. I am proclaiming my word to you, and through my word you can have a second chance. And then in chapters 9 to 14, we see that God is a priest, and through the priest, the people of God can have a second chance. And in that section, Matthew quotes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's not quoted is the next verse, I will Cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. Notice what enters in Jerusalem is a donkey, not a war horse, because for now the war horse has been cut off. The battle bow shall be cut off, and then hear this, and he shall speak peace, peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. How does God answer the cries of the heart of Israel? With a donkey and a king who rides on it. 
It's through Messiah that Israel can have a second chance. It is through Messiah that Israel can have peace. He shall speak peace, Zechariah says. And I want you to see this in two ways this morning, the, the macro and the micro, right? We are a people and a world in search of peace. Like, I want you to think about what's happening right now. As war rumbles in Europe, what is needed? Peace. As uncertainty threatens here because of that, what's needed is peace. As instability heightens, what you need and I need is peace. And the cries of your heart, what is what is stealing away peace for you this morning? So on a micro level, as you sit here in the seats this morning, what are the things that are stealing away your sense, your experience of peace? What, what's giving you anxiety? What's crouching around you that's causing you to experience disintegration? Because the king has come to bring peace, shalom, wholeness. And things that don't bring peace cause disintegration. They break us apart. We aren't whole as a result of experiencing things that are not peace. What's taking away wholeness from you? Wholeheartedness. Like even this morning, as you sit here in these seats, there is many things that vie for you to be present here. As you go home this afternoon, there'll be many things that will compete for your attention, that you will not be able to turn your face towards the very people in your home because you do not have peace. What are those things? What about your vocation and your calling? As you think about what God has set you to do in his world, what's violating that call? Like Israel is thinking macro, right? Their land, the temple, the, the remnant has returned. Now this is the time of Matthew. The remnant has returned. All that has been lost, like the people have returned. The temple that was destroyed has been rebuilt. In fact, Zechariah tells this, prophesies this. The rebuilding of this temple that now sits in Jerusalem, rebuilt, in Zechariah, Zerubbabel is the governor that's charged to rebuild it. He brings forth this rock in Zechariah 4, a cornerstone, and he's told to shout grace to the rock, to not despise the day of small things that the rock represents. And now Israel sees the temple rebuilt, and if the temple is rebuilt, that means Messiah is coming. And so when Jesus enters on a donkey, the hope is that he's going to reestablish Israel. But Israel forgets Zechariah's prophecy. It is one of peace. The king is coming on a donkey means peace, not war and not violence. You see, this king has been armed with words of peace, not weapons of war. Uh, Wilson says the king slowly wobbling into Jerusalem as the crowds cried out, Psalm 118, Hosanna, God save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king was not coming, though, to wash the blood of Israel's enemies, but was coming to wash the feet of his friends. 
And this is how God intended and intends to save and deliver. Not to save people by violence and war, but by humility and peace. The only violence that would be done would be done to his body. And Zechariah, again, the prophet, foretells this. The last six chapters of Zechariah are divided into two oracles, chapters 9 to 11 and then 12 to 14. Both begin with the promise of judgment on Israel's enemies. And then, and then, they point to the one that is to come. In the first oracle, this one is Israel's king, the Lord, the shepherd is what Zechariah calls him. And in the second oracle, the one is the one they have pierced the shepherd who is pierced. At that point, they diverge. The first oracle ends with the divine shepherd king being detested by the flock. It ends in the shepherd king being rejected. This figure is also rejected in the second oracle, but the description is far worse. He's pierced and struck, and the implication is he dies. And yet in chapter 14, the prophet describes a celebration of the day of the Lord, the consummation of a kingdom. The Lord is again reigning. And we are set this morning right back into that story. The God who has sent someone to cleanse his people of their sin. Chapter 13, 1 of Zechariah. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from all their sin and uncleanliness. You see, this someone is God himself who comes in human flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. That's why the the prophecy or our section ends as it does with verse 11. This is Jesus from Nazareth. Like this very physical, we talked about this way back at Christmas, this physical place, this little known place, this is the one that God has sent in human flesh. And if you know the prophecy, if you rehearsed in Zechariah's prophecy, then you would know that on this this day is not the end of the story. For, for, For the shepherd king will be struck down, rejected, and pierced all the way through. You see, the violence won't be done to the Roman authorities and the Gentiles. The violence will be done to Jesus. Why? Why? So we can have peace. Through his sacrifice, the problem of evil is answered. God can be both just and justifier, as Paul says. God can be uh, both good and powerful. How? through the death of the Son of God. The parade is leading directly to the cross, and the triumphal entry cannot be separated from it. And this king will not spill other blood. This king is different. He won't use rocks now to crush every opponent who challenges his rule. Instead, his life will be given up. His blood will be spilled. He will be crushed by wood and nails and steel, and he will be placed behind a stone buried in grave clothes. This is your king coming on a regal donkey. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Psalm 118 says, and this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, there's this now element to the whole parade. This is the day of salvation. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day for freedom. This is the day for justice and peace. This is the day for salvation. The Apostle Paul talks about a parade 
in 2 Corinthians 5. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads an aroma of Christ, the, the knowledge of him everywhere. For one, an aroma of life. For another, the fragrance of death. This is that day. Friends, as you re-enter into Jerusalem, this is the day to believe. This is the day to rejoice. Where are you in the crowd? Where are you in the crowd on this day? Max Lucado says, enter the Holy Week and observe. Feel his passion. Laughing as children sing, weeping as Jerusalem ignores, scorning as priests accuse, pleading as disciples sleep, feeling sad as Pilate turns, sense his power, blind eyes seeing, fruitless trees withering, money changers scampering, religious leaders cowering, tomb opening. Hear his promise, for God has come. God has come into your world to take you home. Let's follow Jesus on his final journey, for by observing his, we may learn how to make ours. Enter Holy Week, friends, marveling at the donkey and crying out with the crowds, cries of your heart. What are those cries of your heart? Hosanna, save us, God, we pray. Save us now, God, we ask. And because our king comes on a donkey, he comes to bring the peace that you need to your unsettled, divided, tear-scorned hearts. So this morning, I want you to sit into that. Even as I pray here in just a moment, what are the cries of your heart? How can you give them to the king of peace? How can you give all those things, all your worries, all your cares to God? Because he cares for you. How do you know? Look at the donkey and the Jesus who rides on it. Let's pray. I pray that we take just a moment and just sit into that. What are the cries of your heart? What are the things that are disturbing and stealing away your peace? Know this morning that the donkey means that God has come and he's come in peace. And that peace was achieved for you through Jesus' very own body on the cross. So you're invited this morning to give all your cares and concerns to God because he cares about you. So take a moment to do that. What is concerning your heart right now? What is dividing you and not making you whole? Give those to God, for he cares about you. And we're going to sing here in just a minute, Hosanna. And that means God save us. The, the prayer of response to a God who comes in peace, who is pierced through to shepherd our hearts to God. The response is God save us now. And so you'll be invited to save us now. As the kids walk in, it's going to be cute and all that with palm branches in their hands. 
the reality is we are crying out for God's salvation to come now, that we might know the God of peace now, even as we wait for what's to come. So you're invited in the space to do that this morning. God, we pray that you would do work on our hearts because we are anxious souls. There is things happening above us and around us and in us that we don't always understand. We need your peace. There are things that are dividing us, dividing us from ourselves, from the people we love the most, and even from you. And we need your peace. So we pray that you would bring it this morning through Jesus. That as his body is torn for us, that we might remember that the curtain was been torn straight through so that we can be ushered into your presence and know your peace. As the blood is poured out for us, that we can know, God, that your blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven and we could have peace with you and with each other and with our world and even with ourselves. So I pray that we would step into this moment and receive the gift of your grace and that we might know your peace, even if for a moment. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.